As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, Dr. Tim Jordan here with another episode of Raising Daughters, and I appreciate you dropping by every week for these. Also appreciate the feedback when you send that in and any questions that you have. Uh, today, I'm going to do an interview with an author who we had on, I guess, about three months ago, was it? I think it was at the beginning of the summer. Her name is Meg Jay, and I first met her, quote unquote, through a book called Supernormal, The Untold Story of Adversity and Resilience. And so when Meg was on, Uh, a couple months ago, we talked about that book. And it was it was fun. It was awesome. I got a lot of good feedback about that. And what I didn't know at the time, but I discovered was she had another book that had actually come out. Uh, it had come out a few years earlier than Supernormal, but then it, there was a new edition that had come out, I think, in the last year. And that book is called The Defining Decade, Why 20-somethings Matter. So Meg Jay is actually is a doctor, Dr. Meg Jay. And she's a clinical psychologist and associate professor of human development at the University of Virginia. And she specializes in adult development and in particular 20-somethings. And her work has appeared in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, the Harvard Business Review. She's been on NPR and the BBC and her TED Talk, which is called Why 30 is Not the New 20, is among the most watched of all time. And for the second time, now she can put on her resume, Raising Daughters. So thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks, Tim. It's great to be here. Great to talk to you again. And one of the things that is not in that introduction is that you also have some experience being a camp counselor. I do. Yeah. Five years as an outward bound instructor. That's right. And that was the most impressive thing for me, obviously, <laughs> because of what I do. But also for me, you know, too, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, those uh, fun times you've had, you've, you did that, but also you, you did some trips, didn't you, with some college students, like a, a a, a study abroad kind of thing? Well, yes. Interestingly, I was on semester at sea. Uh, we got on the ship January 1st, 2020. So Ugh. we were on a ship um, in Asia when COVID broke out. So that was quite an experience. So we yeah, had our, ver our very own, you know, unique journey through um, COVID as it spread around the globe. Um, the 20 something book, by the way, is it's called The Defining Decade. It's really interesting. And any parents out there who have a daughter or a son, for that matter, who is in high school, who is in the college age or anywhere in their 20s, I think you'd, you'd, uh, you and your son or daughter would be well, uh, do a good uh, thing for yourselves by reading it. And one of the things that I learned in the book, because I hadn't really thought about that much, is 
I think a lot of people in these in this day and age kind of blow off the 20s as if it's kind of like this decade where you're supposed to just kind of have fun and be a barista and whatever. And then you get to 30, you go, oh, now I guess I need to start taking life serious. But you, you have a compelling argument in your book that that's not the case. Yeah. So, I mean, what's what's happened, Tim, and this is just the way it is. I'm not saying it should be any different, but, you know, so-called adult milestones happen later than they used to. So 50 years ago, um, your average 21 year old was married, had a baby, a house, a job and sort of a trajectory. And now, obviously, we know a lot has changed. Life isn't doesn't look like that anymore. Um, finding your partner, finding your job, having a child, owning a house, those things all happen now closer to 30 than they do to 20. So that's led a lot of people to say, oh, well, 30 is the new 20, meaning that we could just start everything at 30 and it's all going to fit and we get what we want. But if we do that, besides being very crunched in our 30s, we miss out on sort of the, our 20s being not a developmental downtime, but a developmental sweet spot, a time when you can get out there and get in front of life's biggest decisions. So those milestones may be happening a little bit later, but what that means is that if we still take them seriously in our 20s, we can get in front of them, we can have some trial and error, we can really do them right, but that doesn't happen when we feel like what we do in our 20s doesn't matter. My, my old mentor, Dr. T. Barry Brazelton, I spent a year of fellowship training with him in Boston, like a long, long time ago, but he'd coined a term called touch points. It was a concept uh -huh. about yeah. uh, when we're, when any of us, whether we're a little kid or whether we're a 20 something, we're about to approach a big leap in development, a transition, be that three-year-olds in the terrible twos, five, six-year-olds with their fears, middle school girls who I see who are going through lots of change, high school seniors is a huge touch point, college seniors. And I also think the 20s at different times is a touch point. But when those, yes. those times come, people tend to fall apart and they get out of sorts and they're moody and crabby and there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think sometimes that causes people in their 20s to kind of just shut down. Yeah. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of myths out there about, about the 20s. One is that 30 is the new 20. Not correct from a developmental perspective. Read the defining decade and you'll find out why. Another myth is that your 20s are going to be the happiest years of your life or the best years of your life. <laughs> and I tell my 20-something clients, if the 20s turn out to be the best years of your life, something has gone terribly wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. Because the idea is, is that in our 20s, we want to set ourselves up to be happy and successful and content, whatever the case may be in our twenties. Yes. But also in our thirties, forties and fifties and beyond. And actually um, empirically speaking, mental health tends to take its biggest dip in the twenties. So there the twenties are often the furthest thing from people's happiest years. And so part of the defining decade is about why that is what's so challenging about living with all that uncertainty, but also letting people see like, you're not alone that your twenties actually probably aren't going to be the best years of your life, but they could be some of the most important if you use them to sort of get going on the life that you want. I think a lot of 20 somethings, there's there's kind of a double edged sword where you have more freedom, you have more choices, which sounds really exciting. But for many of them, the reality is something a little different, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, I think um, out of some good intentions, you know, maybe kids have grown up here and you can do anything. You can go anywhere. You can be anybody, which sounds really great, but is actually not very helpful advice because it doesn't help people articulate for themselves what 
thing it is they do want to be or what they're good at or what makes them happy or what's a, a path that makes sense. And so I think a lot of times 20 somethings feel overwhelmed by their choice, you know, purported choices when what they really want is for somebody to say, oh, well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about how to figure out which direction to go or which road to take, that that's actually more helpful than a conversation around how you can be anything or you've got all the time in the world. You talk a lot in your book, it's called The Defining Decade. You talk a lot about identity capital, which I think is interesting. And it, it kind of flows into what you're talking about, which is it's a good time in, in kids' lives, kids, young people's lives in their 20s to kind of start taking stock of what have I learned about myself up till now? Yeah, so identity capital, I was trying to give 20-somethings a different way to think about identity, you know, when they're starting out, because, you know, the old Eric Erickson model of identity crisis, where we kind of have a walkabout and we have a crisis and we figure it out. And I love Eric Erickson and think he was right about pretty much everything. But that model has been misunderstood, you know, in popular culture. And then it makes people feel like they're supposed to wander around until they have an epiphany. And that isn't the way identity development works. You know, identity, we figure out who we are by getting out there and trying things and doing things and saying, yes, more of this or less of that. And so I tell 20-somethings, you know, your job in your 20s is just to get out there and earn some identity capital, do things, have experiences that add value to who you are or teach you new skills or help you have new experiences. So for me, as you mentioned, that was working at Outward Bound for five years. That was going to graduate school. You know, before that, I was finishing college. For someone else, it could be two or three or four different things. But you don't have to decide in your 20s, I am this person now and forever. You just want to get out there and earn some identity capital. And then one piece of identity capital leads to another and another and another. Um, and that's how it builds. And you have, you have a, I thought it was a fun story about yourself in the book about, about some words from professor that, that kind of uh, gave you some direction. Yeah, well, I tell a few, so I don't know if it's the same one that you're thinking of, but um, I, I, when I was in my 20s, as with a lot of people, you know, the concept of time was, it was difficult for me to grasp, you know, all of adulthood or all of my 20s and felt like I had all the time in the world. And I think I went to work at Outward Bound for a year or two. And then before I noticed it had been five years and I went back to my old college town and I, you know, had coffee with an old professor and uh, she said, what about graduate school? And I said, oh yeah, I'm going. And she said, well, what are you waiting for? <laughs> I guess I was waiting for someone to ask me that because as soon as she asked me that I did my application and I went, but you kind of, there's a little bit of time creep there where people feel like they have unlimited time, but then suddenly, you know, for reasons partly manufactured, but partly legitimate, 30 rolls around and people start to panic about how much is left to do. Your story reminded me of a book. I, I can't remember if I mentioned it when we did the podcast last time called The Right Words at the Right Time by oh, Marla yeah. Thomas. Mm -hmm. right. yeah, that'd, be, that'd be a great story for book, uh, part three. In a yes. Book where yeah. someone stepped in and at the right moments, just said the right words. and was like, oh, duh. And there it, we and, go. And That's it, all I needed. Right. Your trajectory. You know, yeah. I also think it's important. I, I, my, my second child, my wife and I's second child, TJ, uh, he graduated from college and he had two majors, political science. And I think it was either sociology or psychology or something like that. And everybody said, oh, he's going to law school. He's like, I'm not going to law school. There's no way. 
but he didn't know what he wanted to do. So he signed on to teach for America for two years. Nice. And he Great was identity inner- capital. Yeah. Yeah. So he was in an inner city school in Chicago for two years and loved the kids, but hated all the stuff around it, the bureaucracy. And just he right. got frustrated with all that. So when he was done with his two years, he was like, he didn't want to be a teacher. He knew that, but he, he didn't know what he didn't do. So he took off. He, he bought a backpack and a ukulele and he took off for New Zealand. Didn't know anybody and didn't just said, I'm just going to do a walkabout basically right. didn't say those words but and he was gone for uh 20 months or 22 months uh-huh. and uh he grew up he was very mature his whole life he was mature but he learned a lot about himself by having to figure it out each step of the way and he he went to new zealand for almost a year and he ran out of money so he picked fruit for a couple months and he went to australia and worked in a restaurant and then traveled then he went to south mm-hmm. he went to southeast asia for three or four months and traveled and he came back and i remember during the trip we would occasionally he would call. I remember him wondering, is it okay for me to be doing this? Mm-hmm. Kind of like, you know, I, I get, I'm getting the sense from some people like, well, you know, you're 20, whatever it was, 26, you should be, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, and he had to kind of fight that off because I think uh-huh. he felt like what he was doing was creating identity capital. Right, right. And, and yeah. you talk about compelling stories that those are important also when you're Absolutely. Yes. And I think sometimes people misread or misinterpret, maybe if they haven't read the book, but just heard about it and assume that I think identity capital has to involve a briefcase or an office. And I mean, I think it really depends on the person. But if you're adding value to who you are, you're adding skills, experiences, you're coming back with some cool stories um, and that, and you've grown and so you have something to show for it, then, then you're earning identity capital. If you get to the point where for me, I was in my last year or two of Outward Bound, where I, I think I was done learning and growing. I just didn't want to figure out what came next. <laughs> then, then it's sort of time to move on to the next piece of identity capital, but it comes in all shapes and sizes, you know, because we do. Yeah. I talk to a lot of young people in my counseling practice in different ways. And I hear so often, I don't want to settle. Mm -hmm. I don't want to settle. Like my, I think my parents settled and Mm -hmm. I see them being miserable in their jobs. I don't want that. And so that's one, that's one of their excuses for not kind of, uh, you know, doing things. Right. Yeah. But, but you, you talk in your book, the defining decade about how in a sense that is settling. Yeah, so it's, um, so I mean, I, I embrace people who say, you know, I don't want to settle, I say, great. So what is it you envision? What is it you want? What is it you don't want? And what is it, you know, working back 5, 10, 20 years? What does that mean you get need to get going on now? And so, you know, sometimes people say, well, I don't want to settle by a, having a starter job now but you're really, you're settling down the line by not getting started on your life. And so I, I am all for people not settling, but sometimes people are confused between the difference between settling and starting. And, you know, sometimes when we're starting out, not everything we do is glamorous. I tell people all the time, I went to grad school, I got a PhD at Berkeley. I mean, it's a great institution. I had amazing faculty, et cetera, et cetera. But I didn't really like it. You know, it wasn't exactly the most glamorous six years of my life. Um, But doing that was all about not settling and getting going on something that I knew I wanted down the line that to me was not settling. And I think what some 20 somethings do is they, you talk about this in your book also, a lot of them are underemployed. 
Mm-hmm. And and they it doesn't seem like a big deal in your 20s, but in reality, it, it does have an effect on their earning power and, and things like that uh, down the line. Yeah, you got to be careful. I mean, every, I, you know, it, it, many, many 20 somethings, if not most, have some underemployment in their 20s. So, you know, they're they're ringing up groceries while they're also studying for the GMAT or they're, you know, working at a bike shop while they're also going to graduate school. So there's a lot of underemployment out there, but I think the question is, is it temporary? Is it a means to an end? Um, Or is it sort of a way of getting stuck? Um, I mean, many people could argue that I was underemployed when I worked at Outward Bound. I think I made $12,000 a year, (laughs) but but I had health insurance and I was getting amazing training and experiences about leadership and working with groups, et cetera. And so, I mean, I think it's really about, is this leading to something else and when is it not? And actually you were, you know, talking about going to graduate school in Berkeley. I remember I was ringing up groceries in a health food store while I was studying for the GRE um, to go to grad school. And I remember one day, you know, I was ringing somebody out and I don't know how it came up. Maybe they saw my book and they said, Oh, are you studying for the GRE? I said, yeah, I want to go to grad school. And they said, where do you want to go? I said, Berkeley. And they laughed, (laughs) um, because they couldn't imagine the cashier girl going, you know, going to Berkeley. And so, you know, it just kind of goes to show like how people see, those who are underemployed and that, you know, that can take a toll on you after too much of that. Yeah. I don't know if we talked about this the last time we talked, but did we talk about my dot theory. I don't think I don't so. Know. But I, 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 this is how I have framed it for young people. And then you tell me how it fits with, with the 20 something book with the divine decade book. I, I tell them to imagine one of those connect the dot drawings that they did when they were little mm-hmm. kids. Yep. And that when you looked at the drawing, it was just a bunch of dots. You didn't know what, what the final picture was, but you would just start to connect dots. And before long, a picture would start to emerge and at the end. Oh, it's, it's a right. uh, Santa Claus. It's a Christmas tree or whatever. Right. So I, I tell them that you don't need to know the final picture, i.e. your job right. when you're 50 and your job is to just be open to dots. Right. Dots are things like outward bound or grad school or a class you take or a job at the grocery store or right. service work or traveling like my son's traveling or reading a biography or having a cup of coffee with your professor. Those are all dots. And I tell them, you don't have to force it. If you right. if you just open to and you follow your gut, follow your urges, it seems like fun, just seems like the right thing to do, that the, that the pictures start to emerge for you mm-hmm. without having to force it. Right. And there are so many different pictures you can draw from a lot of dots and, you know, ways you can erase and change your picture. And, you know, I had a lot of emails over COVID, you know, 20 something saying, oh my gosh, my, you know, the the pandemic is swallowing my defining decade. What am I going to do? (laughs) And, you know, it's kind of saying in your terms, there may be some dots here that they're not the ones you expected, but they might end up being important. So I had a lot of people who were saying, you know, I can't get a job, but I never would have read your book if I hadn't been stuck at home. And I'm now going to do some things differently. And so you just never know. Sometimes you think your dot is going to be that job, but then it ends up being a book that you read, or it ends up being a conversation that you had. And so, yes, I mean, being open to the fact that the dots aren't always what you expected. 
I, I, my wife and I travel a lot and give talks and we've, I've spoken to lots of very successful people all over the world. And, and it's interesting that a lot of them complain about 20 somethings and millennials. Well, mm -hmm. millennials are kind of moving on, but right. young people saying in essence that they need so much direction and they need so much uh, validation and they need so much acknowledgement. They, they don't know how to do it themselves. And I'm wondering if you find that too, with your 20 somethings. Um, I mean, I have been sitting across from 20 somethings for 20 years now. So, and I, I, you know, my book, The Defining Decade is actually for 20 somethings. It's not about them, even though tons of parents read it to kind of have a better understanding of their kids. Mm -hmm. It's really for them. So I tend not to be, you know, a millennial basher um, as much as an empathizer. And I guess what I see is that um, unlike maybe for baby boomers, I'm a Gen X. So I grew up very similarly to millennials, but um, is that because the adult milestones happen so later, so much later, I mean, you're looking at a good 10 to 15 years of really overwhelming uncertainty that people didn't wake up to before. So you spend your whole life in school where there are syllabi and grades and there's structure and homework and then you get an A or a B and you know exactly how everything's supposed to go and there's tons of like formulas around that and then you graduate and you're just in this as one of my clients put it once he felt like he'd just been dropped in the middle of the ocean there's no path no syllabi no grades and I, I do think that's overwhelming and um, and then again people are going to probably go a good 10 to 15 years before they wake up in the morning and the most important dots are there. And so I think, you know, we really saw that with COVID, a lot of the data showed that young adults were struggling more than any other age group. And, you know, some people were saying, oh, they're so fragile, they can't cope. But, you know, I know for me, I was fortunate during the pandemic, but I would wake up in the morning, I still had a partner, still had my kids, still had a job, still had a house. So the, the world felt very uncertain, but my dots were connected. And I think for 20 somethings, you know, there's just a, so much uncertainty. They don't know if they're headed the right way. They don't know if work's going to work out, love's going to work out. They don't know if they'll ever be happy. They don't know if they can pay their bills. It's very challenging. The brain hates that. It hates that much uncertainty. So I, I interpret it that way and empathize with it in that way. And, and the defining decade is really about how you can't really change that as much as you can sort of get out there and start connecting your dots and creating your picture. And that's, that's where the certainty comes from. Let's, let's talk just for a minute about relationships, dating. So what's your 20 somethings, how should they view the twenties as, as their dating time? Well, you know, this is, this is interesting. It's usually, you know, I would say for most 20 somethings today, you know, saying like, you really kind of need to get going on the job thing. It's not, you know, a huge newsflash because they need to pay bills and they know it's going to take some trial and error to, you know, create a career. We spend a really, we do a good job spending 15 years of teaching people how to intentionally, proactively create or find good careers or livelihoods. Love, on the other hand, we're like, well, maybe you'll meet somebody in a bar one night. I mean, we just kind of, you know, there's no way you can be intentional or thoughtful about that. So I try to change that perception. Um, and, 
in the book talk about how, sure, yes, the average age of marriage in the U.S. right now, I think is 29 for men, 28 for women. And that's your average age. So your more educated folks are, you know, finding their partner even later. But rather than that meaning that who you're dating or who you're, you know, hooking up with or whatever the case may be in your 20s doesn't matter, it means you have an opportunity to get in front of this and really do this thoughtfully and try out different relationships, really get to know yourself, really get to know the other person so that when you do make that choice, um, you make it in the way that's right for you. Um, so that's a bit of a, a shift for 20-somethings because their general, the message is, well, you're not getting married anytime soon. So what does it matter what you're doing? But it actually, I mean, this is a huge opportunity to get in front of what is, in my opinion, life's biggest decision. Because unlike careers where jobs are changing all the time and you can go here, go there, whatever, you know, for a lot of people out there, they, they only want to make the partner decision one time and they really want it to work out. No. Yeah. I've, the other thing I think that, that is important too, is when it comes to relationships for them is um, I always talk to young people about their level of deservability, which isn't mm-hmm. even a word, but what you, what you talk about in the book is their level of their self-perceived mate value. Uh-huh. So, yeah. And you talk, and talk about that for a minute. Yeah, this is really important. It comes up, I would say, in general, more with women than with men. And, you know, we could talk about that all day. But what I hear more than anything else in my practice around, you know, 20 something dating or college is young women who are always thinking about who likes them, you know, who wants me and versus what it is that they want or what who they might like or, or what they envision. And so it's really, I think a lot of young women's self-worth is very bound up in, you know, how desired they've been by other people before. Although, you know, at 21, you don't have a ton of data to go on at that time. And so I try to have people not make up their mind about that too early, but there's just a lot bound up in how wantable are they versus what is it that I actually want. And so the what you see from that is, is that every time someone wants them, they try to make it work. Um, even though you can see from a mile away, it's not going to. And so I try to have them flip that of this, is this even what you want? Or have you ever thought about what you wanted instead of just figuring out if you can want what's who's wanting you? And I think what, what I've noticed that requires is that when you go into your 20s, you're sometimes dragging along some old belief systems about yourself that have developed because you were dumped by your friends in middle school or because you were dumped by your boyfriend in you know, whatever, 12th grade. And so yeah, sometimes right. those belief systems are what cause us not to have a very high self-perceived mate value and makes it harder for you, you know, to, to shift it from being wanted to what do I want? Yes. So, and, you know, it's interesting when, you know, that's part of the work with 20 somethings is, and, you know, with middle schoolers, with adolescents, it's just helping people be more self-aware. So they may not be aware or conscious of the fact that, yeah, I, I, I was dumped, you know, pretty brutally by a couple of people in high school. And therefore I've concluded that no, nobody good is ever going to want me. That's a big conclusion to come to after 
you know, some data from, you know, a couple of knucklehead 16 year old boys or girls, you know, that's, that's quite a conclusion to come to. And so it's sort of helping them realize what are the assumptions that they're operating with and whether or not those really make sense um, or need to stand for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And sometimes it's not even from dating things. It's more like my parents got divorced. My dad remarried, has a new family, doesn't call very much. Right. Therefore, yep. I'm not very important or therefore right. other people. None of this ever works out. And yeah, mm-hmm. I don't trust people. I can't get close to people. People go away. I mean, there's all kinds of beliefs that I find in, in the work that I do that they're dragging with them. And when I mean, they turn 18 or 21 or whatever, they don't just drop those and move on. They, they keep they keep affecting the way they look at things. Right. Well, they can. And I certainly, you know, both in supernormal and in the defining decade, I mean, my, you know, the, the motivation to writing both of those books is how in a lot of ways your 20s are really your best chance for a do over. And that you, you know, suddenly, and this again is a shift, suddenly your life is yours. Whereas, you know, the first 20 years of your life, you were sort of living in someone else's story or following someone else's rules and structures. But suddenly, in your 20s, your life is yours. And so it's not about your parents' marriage. It's about your partnership. And it's not about what went before. It's about what you want to come next. And so that is an enormous shift for people, but one that has, you know, obvious, um, you know, incredible opportunity. And the opportunity is like, oh, well, it's my life. On the other hand, oh my God, it's my life. I'm responsible, right? (laughs) Well, that's where it's like, can I get the syllabus back, please? Okay, I want my life, but could you give me the syllabus? <laughs> yeah. What's you know, we, we hear a lot about how uh, our brains don't fully develop, especially the frontal lobes, the prefrontal cortex, until I think for women in their early 20s, for guys, middle, late 20s, what effect does that have on, on 20-somethings? I mean, I think, you know, we know that, like you said, the the prefrontal cortex is still wiring up. And so that's the part of the brain that's responsible for situations we've been talking about tonight, such as, you know, handling uncertainty or planning ahead, thinking about time, all the things I'm talking about, 20 somethings really struggle with a lot. And so sometimes people interpret that as, oh, you know, they're just not able to do it. So maybe if they, you know, hang out in the basement. And then when they turn 30, suddenly their brains are going to be raring to go and they're going to go out there and crush life. And watching video games games in the basement doesn't. No, it doesn't. doesn't help with that forward thinking aspect. So the dopamine bit it's, it's good for, but um, you know, think of it as learning a language with young kids or social skills. You know, we say, yeah, go to kindergarten, be exposed to language, get in there with social skills. That's how we don't say stay home with mom and dad and then go to school in the third grade and you'll be ready to roll. And so I think what we need to remember about adolescent brains, 20 something brains, sure, they're still wiring up. But what that means is they're learning faster than they're going to learn at any other time in terms of, you know, acquiring these skills. And, you know, we know that neural connections are use it or lose it. So the, you know, the pathways we create, the, the ways that we function, the way that we think and handle our feelings and organize time, um, the more we practice with that, we're really setting that up for life in terms of wiring ourselves to be the adults we want to be. 
I actually joke with people that, so I spent, you know, as we've talked about five years as an outward bound instructor in my twenties. So it's funny because I've basically been an outward bound instructor my whole life because in some form or another, I'm always just helping people get from A to B with maximum adventure and enjoyment and achievement and minimal injury or death. <laughs> like I've been the, doing the safety, that. The safety net. Yeah. You know, I've been doing that my entire life. Um, oh, but, I think, awesome. but I think in my twenties, month after month, all I did was help people plan. How are we going to get from here to here? How are we going to make our days go so that it all works out? How are we going to, you know, evaluate the risks and think about what it is we're trying to achieve along the way? Anyway, I feel like my brain was completely wired to do that. And that's what I've been doing ever since. That's a great frame of reference, way of looking at it. That's awesome. You know, one more question before I kind of ask you a couple of summary things. A lot of 20 somethings act like no, no big deal as far as dating and marriage and having kids, whatever. But then there's people talk a lot about, oh my gosh, my biological clock is ticking. And all of a sudden in the late twenties, they start to worry and they get a little bit anxious. I'm wondering if you've experienced that as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, that, that anxiety can be a good thing. I mean, I, I look at it as the urgency is kicking in because, you know, none of us have unlimited time and, you know, the biological clock is real. And you know what, actually science says that both men and women have a biological clock. We always talk about women's, but both men and women, you know, older eggs and older sperm have trouble. So, um, you know, there's a reality around thinking about what all do we want, work, love, family, Um, where do we want to be? How do we make all those things happen within a reasonable, you know, frame timeframe. And I think the urgency is helpful. And I think the limits are helpful because think about it. If we didn't have the urgency and we didn't have the limits, no one would ever do anything. (laughs) So, you know, I think it's just um, maybe helping people think some about that before they feel the urgency, just to practice that a little of, Oh yeah, what, what all do I want and how is it all going to fit helping that frontal lobe plot out long periods of time Um, And then the urgency often kicks in when they see their peers choosing, you know, meeting the adult milestones, making the choices. It's not about just copying your friends. Um, You know, it's often about like, hey, I think I need to get going on those things myself. And so I think you can really work with the urgency. You know, it's not useful for people just to panic and catastrophize and assume it'll never work out, but rather to say, okay, well then you're telling me we need to get going on something. So what is it? Yeah. So for the 20 somethings who are listening to this podcast, how about to, as we end here, give them a couple of specific things that they can do to um, start to look more forward be more forward thinking. Give me a couple examples. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, okay. Um, so one is about, um, having a conversation with your future self. So we know there's, there's like a, something called the empathy gap between your current self and your future self, where we have trouble sort of taking care of our future selves because they feel like strangers. It's the same reason we aren't doing a good job of sort of saving the planet for our grandchildren because they're strangers to us. So to really try to get to know your future self a little bit. So to vividly imagine who might I be in five years, where could I be, what kind of relationship would I want to be in? Just, just play with it. Just have a good time with it. 
And not that you have to know once and forever, but just to get that started of that's sort of how life unfolds. We start to have dreams and we start to imagine the future and then we start heading that way um, and see how it feels as we go. Um, but there's a, a great quote, I won't get it wrong, but it's something like, you know, we fail our future, uh, not being kind to our future selves is a failure of belief or imagination. And, you know, I think a lot of young people have a hard time believing or imagining they'll ever be 30 or they'll ever be 35, but if they're lucky, they will. So um, it's something to think about. Also, what, what can a 20 something do specifically to start identifying and putting together and becoming aware of their identity capital? You know, I would say, um, you know, make a list that you think about what are the things that I have done? I mean, it's sort of the resume of your life, because a lot of times people have identity capital that they don't own or they don't recognize. So sometimes friends can do this with each other or book clubs, you know, do this with the defining decade. It, because you'll see identity capital in a friend that they don't even, oh, I didn't even think of that as identity capital. Yeah. So, you know, kind of start making the resume of your life of what do you have going for you? What have you done that's added value to who you are? And the third thing, which we didn't talk about much today, but it's also in the defining decade, is just about the value of using weak ties. So getting outside of family and best friends and talking to you know, friends of friends of friends or your neighbor's boss's HR person, just about work or about life or about love, whatever. But that's where all the new information, the new jobs, the new apartments, the new dates, the new everything comes from outside the inner circle. So a lot of 20 somethings sort of huddle up um, out of it, you know, kind of to protect themselves, but really what they want is from outside that little cluster. I'm not sure if you ever read the book. Um, it was by Mel Levine, Ready or Not, Here Life Comes. No. He probably, he probably wrote it, I don't know, 10 or 15 something years ago. But one of the things I remember from the book was he's, and I think it's true, everything that, that kids do, young people do, is pre-vocational. They don't mm -hmm. think of it in that way, but in a sense it is. And that's why oh, I sure. think mm -hmm. taking stock of like my son's trip, you think, well, he's traveling, he should be getting a job. And well, that, no, that actually was uh, some capital. Right, it served sure. him well when he got his interviews, and he's working with young people still in right. a different way. But um, so I, I, want, I think what you said is true. I think they need to broaden their scope of what is it, what is capital. Absolutely, I, I gave a talk at a big consulting firm a while back, and someone was, you know, so the every all anyone could think about is, you know, the MBA, the MBA. I should probably go get yeah. the MBA. And so this one person said, you know what, I I kept putting off the MBA, and I took a wine tasting class instead, and that has helped me more in my career because I can go into a restaurant with clients, and I can order wine, and I can talk wine, or I can hold, you know wine tasting events. And so this, this little side thing she did that was like to her, a form of rebellion has ended up being as valuable as the MBA that she ultimately got, but that her six week wine class has been at least as helpful. So that was a dot. That was an important a dot. A good piece of identity capital for, yeah. I think you have to remember too, that a lot of times it doesn't seem like it's fitting until time goes by and then you can look back and go, oh, oh now I, oh, it makes sense. The wine class right. and my clients and taking them out for dinners. A lot of times it doesn't seem to make sense in, until it's like a look back. Right. That's right. 
So we've been talking to Meg Jay. She's the author. She's the author of a really good book called *The Defining Decade: Why Something, Why Twenty Somethings Matter*. The Defining Decade: Why Twenty Somethings Matter. And there's also a second edition. That's the one I read. So, yeah, it just came out in uh, 2021. It's got a great cover. It's I wrote both of them, but of course, I think the 2021 version is way better than the 2012 <laughs> version. I really do. You don't get many do-overs in life, and I got a do-over on what was already a good book, but um, it's more current. It's more... I mean, you know, I'm I'm 10 years older and wiser than when I wrote the first version, so I think it's even better. Thank you so much for all your information for 20-somethings and for their parents who are watching them, trying to support them. Any any, uh, any good advice for the parents of 20-somethings as we before we leave? Um, you know, don't panic. And I'm, I'm really not pushing the book to say maybe buy the defining decade and give it to your kid for a birthday as much as to say that sometimes it's easier for young adults to hear these things from somebody besides mom or dad. And um, so I have many, many parents say, my kid doesn't really want to hear the millionth lecture from me on this, but hearing it from someone else has been easier for all of us. And so, you know, that's a suggestion. So you're only suggesting, I'm saying parents buy the book or 20 somethings (laughs) buy the book, The Defining Decade, Why 20 somethings matter. And even for, I I would think you would agree for, for young people who are like, you know, 17, 18, they're late high school who are sort of approaching that time. It's not a bad idea to kind of have a sense of what's coming up. Yes. It's a great, a lot of people give it as a high school graduation or college Mm. graduation gift. Um, It really gets people thinking. And again, it's not coming, you know, it's personal, you know, it's interesting. This is a podcast about young women, but I've heard from a lot of young men over the years who say, I don't really have anyone to talk to about this, you know, because the younger guys don't sit around and have these conversations. And so they've appreciated having somebody quote someone to talk to about it. So in addition to buying, Oh, the places you'll go by Dr. Seuss, you also add the defining decade, why 20 somethings matter by Meg J. Thanks so much for, for being on raising dollars. I really appreciate it. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Well, that was fun and interesting. And I, uh, I would also encourage you to do what Meg J just said, which is this is something that really would be valuable for your 20 somethings or your 17 year old or your 18 year old. It's not really, her book is really geared to 20 somethings to read, not so much their parents. Although you obviously will get lots of good ideas and um, information about what your 20 something is going through. So I would, I would highly recommend that book. She's a great writer, easy to read style. Um, it's, it's a quick read, quote unquote, but I especially have your 20 somethings read that. I will be back here uh, in another week or two with another podcast on raising daughters. I appreciate you tuning into this and all the different channels that it's on. Please send feedback through my website at drtimjordan.com or also, and, you, and also if you're getting this through those sites, there's show notes. We have some, just some uh, summary of what kind of things we talk about. And there's some links there as well. I'll, I'll put a link in there for Meg Jay's book as well. Thanks so much for stopping by. I'll be back here in a week to see you. I'll see you then. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.